0: Welcome to another episode, Journey to Midwifery fans. This week I have on Sarah Thompson. She's the author of the book, Functional Maternity, Using Functional Medicine and Nutrition to Improve Pregnancy and Childbirth Outcomes. In this episode, she shares a small piece of her vast wealth of knowledge on the subject, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. This is a podcast for and about midwives. This is the place where midwives come to share their stories. I am your host, Amber Wilson, a midwife myself. I felt called to this journey of sharing the stories of midwives around the globe, and I hope that you will find as much joy listening as I do interviewing. Remember the quote, life is about the journey, not the destination. Okay. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to Journey to Midwifery podcast. Um, And you are a little bit of a unique guest for me. So I'm excited about not a midwife, but definitely in the birth world. So um, introduce yourself and tell me about your, tell the listeners about your work. Yeah. So my name is Sarah Thompson.
1: I am a functional functional medicine practitioner, a licensed acupuncturist, a licensed herbalist, and a birth doula. And my practice is based in Colorado. And what I provide primarily is functional medicine services from uh, fertility all the way through postpartum. And our, our goal is to kind of bring back the care of mothers into the care of pregnancy.
0: And you found me and sent me your book, which is called... Yes, so I am the author of Functional Maternity,
1: Using Functional Medicine and Nutrition to Improve Pregnancy and Childbirth Outcomes.
0: And did it just hit the shelves? Did I see that?
1: Yeah, we just released
0: it in November 2021. It was fantastic. So I definitely say everybody should read this, all midwives. Um, So we'll talk about your knowledge and a little bit probably what's in the book. Um, Yeah. But start with telling us why. What made you get into birth work from the beginning?
1: I think like a lot of people and women who get into birth work, it's typically through our own birth experiences. And I have always loved nutrition. I've always used nutrition in my treatment protocols. I've been an acupuncturist for 16 years now. And I started off primarily in sports medicine, pain management, you know, acupuncture, bread and butter, but I always used nutrition in treatment protocols and always knew nutrition was a big part of overall body function. And I became pregnant with my first child in 2008, 2007, every year it was. And she was born in 2008, whatever that math comes out to be. And, <laughs> and it was one of those things that up until that point, Women's care, pregnancy, childbirth, those aspects of health weren't even on my radar. Uh, friends of mine who knew me from way back when were pretty shocked to, to know that I was even having a kid because that was not what I wanted to do. I was very career driven. I wanted to have a big practice. I wanted to do all these things. And then it was this moment of, this is absolutely fascinating. Why didn't anybody tell me this was so cool? And I needed to know everything there was to know about. Basically pregnancy and maternity care. And as I went through the pregnancy care system myself, I realized very quickly that there were some missing pieces to to maternity care. And the biggest one being nutrition aspects. And it was kind of at that point that I decided that that was, that was my calling, that was my journey. And it was to really dive deep into how nutrition plays into the functions of maternity physiology and pregnancy outcomes and start really diving
0: my practice into that aspect of care. Were you a doula before you were pregnant yourself?
1: No. Okay. Yeah, I did my my doula training uh, sometime within the year after I had my first kid and then everything just
0: spiraled from there
1: yeah and then that was kind of the beginning of of a path that i never expected to be on and one of the greatest greatest career and personal adventures i've been been through
0: so and i just i know you've talked about this in your book too but um what is your academic background specifically that led you down the path of being able to pull this material together and write this book sure so I have
1: my medical degree, which is a master's degree in traditional Chinese medicine, and I have additional training in functional medicine. So I am a certified functional medicine practitioner. And for those of you who don't really understand what that is, because it's new and complicated, it is basically taking functional medicine is taking clinical nutrition and applying it to to physiology. That's what it is. And it is an adjunct certification off of a medical license. So midwives can become functional medicine practitioners, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, physicians, uh, nurses in general, can all go and and do the additional training. And it takes anywhere from a year to two years, depending on what organization you go through for certification. Nice.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's dig into a little bit. Um, And you talked about this in your book, but nutrition, and as you know, that's why you got into it has been underutilized in disease prevention and, and really optimizing all of our health. Um, We see this particularly in maternity care. And I love how you talk about in the book, we talk about, you know, eating this, that, that for the mother, but are we including the, the, the dyad? And it's not really, I feel like it's coming more to the forefront now, but it hasn't historically been that way. Um, So can you discuss ways to help achieve healthier outcomes with nutrition?
1: Yeah. And that is, you know, the, the ability of making better outcomes with nutrition comes with educating the mother on nutrition itself. It's not as simple as here's your top 10 foods that are going to make you have a better pregnancy. It's really understanding and getting back to the basics of nutrition that we have lost in our society. And we have been misguided in our society through nutrition. Sadly, you know, the majority of nurses and, and physicians don't don't even have a nutrition course throughout any of their education. And, you know, if you you, you look at these surveys that are done on physicians, uh, postgraduate, you know, 95% of them will say, yes, our position is to guide people nutritionally, but yet for only 14% actually believe they have the education to, to teach nutrition to their patients. And The ability to use nutrition in helping a mother have a better pregnancy outcome really comes down to teaching them what they never were taught, which becomes fun. A lot of people, you know, nutrition is starting to become definitely more mainstream. People are starting to realize that nutrition really plays into health, but there's a lot of confusion on what that actually looks like because we're still being pushed some of these nutrition guidelines that were wrong. Well, from, from the 1980s and it's been since about 2006 that nutrition research has really just spiraled and we we see all these studies basically saying oh yeah that stuff we told you back then yeah that was kind of wrong we're sorry and not a lot of that apology and change is really making it through the system and so there's a lot of people still kind of relying on these old guidelines and when we look at these different studies, these different surveys that talk about nutrition in just the general population, we see that the U.S. population is really struggling nutritionally. Uh, things like the standard American diet are highly associated with increased risks of cardiovascular disease, increased risks of diabetes, all of these complications that we see being comorbidities to more complications in pregnancy. So the, the concept of how do we use nutrition to improve pregnancy and childbirth outcomes is a bit more complicated than working just with a mother in that exact pregnancy. A lot of the work comes about preconceptionally by, again, teaching them how to eat properly and how to support their body uh, nutritionally so that they start pregnancy with the best nutritional reserve that they can. That is not to say that once a person comes in, to me, say pregnant, and we're seeing these complications in these situations that we cannot change them with nutrition protocols. It just becomes a little bit harder. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: a big yeah, hill, I think, to climb
1: it is a It is a large hill to climb as practitioners ourselves and as, as women in, in the public. And a lot of our false beliefs and poor nutrition education come about from childhood. Uh, We see that, you know, some studies will actually show that a a woman's diet from birth through puberty is actually more indicative of their ability to reproduce and their childbirth outcomes than anything they do in adulthood. Wow. Which is very interesting that that nutrition that they are getting from even, you know, being in utero themselves, transfers into their hormonal output it transfers into their body structure and and that then cascades throughout the rest of their life that we're setting up the foundation for their reproductive health in that time frame and it's why in my book i say you know oftentimes when we are dealing with uh, maternity clients yes we are there to help and support that mother that is in our office right then but it's a much bigger picture because say she's carrying a female fetus we are setting that woman up for success in her own pregnancy before she's even born Mm -hmm. and it's it's amazing isn't that fascinating yeah and so what a mother does during her pregnancy nutritionally factors into her daughter's ability to birth later Mm -hmm.
0: how can we integrate the role of nutrition into the female body to improve those outcomes I think it starts with understanding
1: what is going on in the maternal physiology. And again, how that nutrition plays into the, really the biochemical processes of that physiology. If you search nutrition in pregnancy and say like PubMed, nutritional deficiencies in pregnancy, what you're going to find is a whole list of studies that link nutritional deficiencies with fetal dysfunction, fetal growth issues, uh, those sorts of things. You will find very little that talks about what's happening in mom's body. And I'm a big believer that if mom is healthy, baby's going to be healthy. But if baby's healthy, it doesn't always mean mom is healthy. That baby is going to steal everything it can from mom until mom is drained. And then once mom's drained, then baby's going to suffer. And so we have to support mom during that. So it comes down to understanding the physiology of the maternal body and what's happening there. And again, how nutrition plays into that. And throughout pregnancy, what's happening in the maternal physiology is really determined by the placenta and the baby and the hormones that are being produced in these different chemicals that are being produced by by those organs, the the placenta and and the baby itself. And it's really interesting to see how that happens. So for example, let's go first trimester, right? Right off the bat, mother's body changes drastically from the onset of labor because of things like hcg production right and that's the you know the hormone that tells us we're pregnant and it hijacks the maternal physiology to stimulate all these different things to happen in the uterus to facilitate the growth of that baby right one of the big things it does is it helps to stimulate progesterone from the ovary right to sustain that pregnancy it increases insulin production from the pancreas we'll see up to a 15 times increase of insulin during, during the first trimester, which is just a huge amount for some women. We also see that HCG hijacks the thyroid and that the thyroid actually becomes hyperthyroid in pattern. And if we're looking at nutrition in regards to that, there's a lot of different nutrients that have to come from mom during this time frame. Some of them are acute nutrients like B vitamins, zinc, some of these water soluble things, vitamin C. Other ones were accumulated way before, things like vitamin D. Iodine. These things were accumulated preconception. And now we're going to use them in the maternal physiology to support the fetal physiology, which is pretty cool. Um, other things that happen throughout pregnancy, you know, talk about the doubling of blood volume, right? Really, it's a 50% increase in plasma, 35% increase in red blood cells. But we see that the physiology changes during that time frame, and that we have this wonderful opportunity in about the second trimester for mom to accumulate iron and store it for the third trimester. And what happens is she gets to change in her hormones based off the baby in the third trimester, which basically causes her body to break down her stored ferritin to give it to baby. And so after a certain point, she can't accumulate iron and store it. And it's interesting when we're looking at maternity care and some of the co- things that we do, With lab work and our standard protocols and things like that, that when we look at the maternal physiology and what we're doing, it's really not to the benefit of the mother, it's to the benefit of the baby. So things like a mom's being anemic coming into the third trimester, if she's already anemic at that point, we are going to struggle to help her. And the goal of giving iron is really to make sure baby gets that 400 milligrams of iron that they are supposed to store before birth. So it's changing, changing the narrative slightly and saying, hey, let's check in the second trimester and say, is mom doing okay with her iron reserves? Before we get to the point that baby starts sucking the iron out of her and let's support her so we don't get those complications. And everything in pregnancy is this concept, I think, of preparing for preparing. And what we're doing here in, say, the second trimester is to support mom in the third trimester. And what she's doing in the third trimester is to support her postpartum. And if we miss one of these steps, then she gets deficient and then she's off. And then we have complications, say things like postpartum depression. We have postpartum hypothyroidism and some of these things that pop up after birth because she didn't get supported during the pregnancy side of things.
0: Yes. I was thinking throw in like a 20 week H and mm-hmm. you know, is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. Like check. Cause you have to usually check at the beginning whenever Mm -hmm. that is for your office, eight or 12 weeks, and then nothing till 28 weeks. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And in 28 weeks, you know, we still have some wiggle room there. Usually Mm -hmm. it's right around the 32 week mark that we'll see that iron metabolism shift occur. Um, Interestingly, it's about 24 weeks that we see that there is an increase in iron absorption altogether. So I in general, typically, you know, plant based irons are absorbed at about 15%, animal based irons are absorbed at about 35%. When we see this hormonal switch at about 24 weeks, all iron across the board is absorbed at about 35, 40%. So your body wants that iron, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it craves it. And then you hit that point in about 30, 32 weeks where your body goes, Oh, we should have accumulated enough now. Let's give it all to baby. Mm-hmm. Right now we are going to live off of all of the red blood cells that we made and all of the ferritin that we stored during that time frame. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of doing, I like to run ferritin and total iron and uh, iron binding capacity and all of that a little earlier on than 28 weeks. Because if, if we do have cause, the issues there, then then we have more wiggle room to help support mom. And you know obviously we wanna support baby, but we really wanna support mom here. And there's a lot more that goes into the making of red blood cells. We focus so much on iron simply because baby needs so much iron and we have this shift in the third trimester, but only 20% of all anemia cases is related to iron deficiency. Wow. And we
0: just give give everybody everybody iron. (laughs) We just give them iron.
1: We hyperdose them on iron, which then comes with its its own set of, of issues because iron is very oxidative. In the body it creates oxidative stress and inflammation i mean uh, most women just feel constipated but there's a lot of other things that can happen in there if we give women too much iron when they don't need it uh other things that go into red blood cell formation are things like b vitamins b12 folate b6 we need zinc we need vitamin c we need some magnesium we need some copper there's a whole gamut of nutrients that can also be associated with anemia and we're really kind of cutting a big group of women short when we just say take an extra iron supplement and that's kind of the idea of where functional medicine is just a little bit different than conventional medicine because we're looking at the how and the why behind it how are your red blood cells made if you are showing signs of anemia what kind of anemia is it it's it's this idea of differentiation Yes, we have a a condition, but we need to differentiate it because we know there's different patterns associated with this. And we really need to differentiate to a point that we have a very accurate diagnosis in the why behind it so that we can treat it
0: successfully. So I'm going to ask you a question about functional medicine. You kind of went into that. But before that, I'm just curious, like, so standard world, you know, we just check H&H and supplement with iron but would you say like what could be realistic could you would you say further investigate if somebody's anemic or Mm -hmm. should everyone have iron panels like what do you think about that
1: i think having a full cbc not just an h &H, and h
0: with with
1: an iron and a ferritin should become the standard of care simply because yeah H and H is great, you know, see the hematocrit, see the hemoglobin levels, but if you're not doing like a mean corpuscular volume or something like that, you're probably going to miss a B vitamin deficiency.
0: Yeah. And I was in my experience, it's been a full CBC, but not an iron panel, unless there was more Mm -hmm. digging. Right.
1: I tend to do it. Studies will show that a slightly lower ferritin level, even in the first trimester, is more indicative of complications later Mm -hmm. in pregnancy. And so if we do say a ferritin in the first trimester and it's already on the lower end, then we need more work even from the Mm get-go. Right. And that's something that we'll see. And then if ferritin is too high, right, that's a sign of inflammation. And sometimes it it won't transfer into a CBC. And so it's a very good uh, diagnostic panel, honestly, to see what's going on. Higher ferritin levels can be associated, and so can low ferritin levels, with things like preeclampsia. There is definitely a connection with anemia and preeclampsia. Um, and whether it is a B vitamin deficiency issue or an iron deficiency issue, there's a number of possibilities there. That kind of factor into why anemia, obviously, if you don't have enough blood flow, then you can get some dysfunction to the placenta because it's just not getting the blood flow and the nutrients it's Mm -hmm. supposed to, um, if we're anemic, our body's going to push a little harder, maybe raise that blood pressure to get things where it needs to be. But then there's also that functional nutritional aspect where we look at if it's a zinc deficiency anemia, well, you have to have zinc for that placenta to function correctly anyways. And we will see things like lower alkaline phosphatase, we'll see some of these other zinc signs associated with preeclampsia that's also seen in conjunction with anemia. So it can be a little complicated there. You also see elevated, ferritin levels being a sign of inflammation and tissue damage and breakdown of cells as cells die we get a release of ferritin and so if it's too high then we can go oh man we got cell damage happening in there um and usually you'll see that with things like you know elevated red blood where baby's hemoglobin is getting spilled into mom's hemoglobin and then we get a higher hemoglobin level uh, and really the the rise and all of that is associated with uh more the fetal blood getting into mom's blood there than it is than it is actual mom's blood being elevated.
0: Yeah, it's a lot and definitely like I feel like your book is a study guide because it's more, I mean, I took, I don't know, I think it was one or two semesters in nursing school of nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um but nothing really in graduate, nothing in more advanced. Yeah.
1: That was a lot like my original education as well, right? We had undergraduate nutrition. We did have some nutrition classes in graduate, in our graduate studies, but not, not to the depth Mm -mm. that functional medicine goes into nutrition, right? It just goes into it at Not only that biochemical level, you know, where we see B6 is needed for this specific enzyme or zinc is needed for this specific enzyme. And without those, those enzymes don't work or we can't make them or that aspect, but going into the whole connection between the different organs in and of themselves and nutrition and, and that connection between it all versus this is uterus, this is how uterus works. We go, well, there's more than that. What about mom's adrenal glands that actually factor into things like fetal development? And then we need the placenta to help trigger that adrenal gland to do its job. Uh, Cortisol production is a huge part of the maternal physiology. And we have the placenta that triggers mom's adrenal glands to produce a ridiculous amount of cortisol throughout pregnancy. Between, you know, throughout all of pregnancy, but there's a huge jump between 37 weeks and the onset. Of childbirth, but over the course of pregnancy, it's a five hundred percent increase in
0: cortisol. Five hundred percent. Yeah, I remember reading that, thinking, "Wow, like this must contribute to why you feel like just kind of stressed." And then those last, you know, one how they say, "Oh, the last every pregnancy is nine months," and the last. Two weeks is nine thousand four hundred fifty nine days. That is literally how it feels, and it made me think when I read that that the cortisol increases. It's got to mm-hmm. continue because you just are like Absolutely. I cannot even think about being pregnant for five more days. And in hindsight, you're like, really, it's not that big a deal. It was five days, but in the moment,
1: mm-hmm. it
0: feels so overwhelming. It does. It's one of the reasons that people get the, uh,
1: you know, the, the nesting, mm-hmm. right there. They're slightly insomniac. They're really, really high energy. They're really motivated to do stuff. It's part of that increase is cortisol is, you know, fight or flight. It gets you awake. It gets you up and going. It also helps to trigger, you know, the production of adrenaline. And we also see this giant increase in adrenaline in those last couple weeks leading up to childbirth. And it's interesting because cortisol does a number of other things in the body. And of course, we always think of it as just The fight or flight stress response, but we start seeing the rise in in cortisol way back at, you know, like 24 weeks. And that change in cortisol levels is really important for how childbirth is going to go. And I think it's interesting. And one of my favorite things and like, I think I said, you know, in my book and chapter 12 is like my piece de resistance is things that accumulate in leads up to the, each of these steps from that time frame on for labor to be functional. So everything from like cervical ripening, right? cervical ripening starts around 24 to 28 weeks. That's when we start to see things like the collagen, cortisol. cortisol, progesterone made a nice little knotted nest type looking collagen fiber matrix. Cortisol unwinds those fibers and makes them parallel So, that when we go into labor, there are gaps that that collagen fiber can stretch and open and fill with fluid to efface the cervix. But it starts happening at 24 weeks. And if we didn't hit this milestone, then it's going to delay the process later on. We have to hit milestones throughout that whole last trimester. Estrogen, the same thing. All of these hormones are being produced by a happy, healthy fetus and a happy, healthy placenta, and then mom's response to those chemical reactions so we can have a baby and a placenta who are doing their job but mom's body can't respond to it correctly and if she is already at 28 weeks not getting enough healthy fats in her diet or she's magnesium or manganese deficient or has some other complication associated with nutritional deficiencies that already puts her behind for that progression then she's going to stay slightly behind for that progression it's interesting there's a There's so many interesting things about the progression to childbirth Mm -hmm. and everything that goes into that. One of the ones that I find super interesting is that six fold increase in vitamin A receptors in the uterus in the third trimester. And we have a war against vitamin A. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, what does that do? What does the vitamin A do in the uterus? Its big thing is it makes oxytocin receptors. Mm. So, if you are vitamin A deficient, or if a mother is vitamin A deficient, she can't produce the number of oxytocin receptors that she's going to need for childbirth. And if she doesn't make, say she makes you know, 60% of the receptors she needs for childbirth to be functional, what do you think that's gonna do when her body finally produces oxytocin and she only has 60% of the receptors that she was supposed to have in that labor experience? Yeah. She's gonna have things like, mm, I don't know, weak contractions. She's gonna have sporadic contractions. She's gonna have quote unquote failure mm-hmm. to progress. She can't, she can't labor functionally because the constituents aren't there. Her uterus wasn't able to make the receptors needed for that
0: oxytocin to bind to. That is fascinating. It, it really is. It, I have to say, though, when I read, I'm like, okay, how do you tackle this without having like buckets of vitamins every day? Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't.
1: And part of it is again, teaching women how to eat in pregnancy. And it's very different, right? It's very different than what we've been told. It's a lot of maybe foods that they don't really like to eat, Mm -hmm. but humans and women in general have eaten these foods for a very long time Mm -hmm. because they are nutritionally dense. Things like liver, right? Organ meats. We have a war against eating liver in pregnancy. And it's based off of some really junky science. I wrote a, a blog article, actually, quite, quite a few years ago. And the whole idea was about, no, I wrote a couple. One, one of the blog articles I wrote was basically saying, here are my top 10 foods for pregnancy to prepare for childbirth, right? And one of the foods I listed in there was liver. And of course, I had a comment down there where a woman was saying, you can't tell women to eat liver in pregnancy because it can cause birth defects, right? And I had to, of course, then write a secondary article to contradict what she was saying. And the fact that vitamin A in pregnancy and the birth defect connection is very weak. And the studies that were done on vitamin A are primarily the synthetic water-soluble vitamin A, right? And... The body doesn't recognize that the same. And in fact, it can very easy to become toxic. It's actually, you know, the form that is found in say medications like Accutane. And we know Accutane, if you're on Accutane and you get pregnant, you have a high risk of birth defects. The risk is only in the first, first trimester and really only the first couple of weeks of the first trimester. It's usually before women even know they're pregnant. You would have to eat a ridiculously large amount of liver in order for that to actually be an issue.
0: There was which was no one's going to do in America, which, which no <laughs> one's going to do in America.
1: Um, I have patients all over the world and definitely I have patients. I've had a patient who was in Saudi Arabia and she actually contacted me via my article on liver because she had been craving goat liver mm. and she had been eating goat liver every single day throughout her first trimester. And of course she was panicked, right? Right. Everything turned out fine her baby was fine everything was fine there was a study and i can't remember where when it was exactly what year it was but they were feeding in order to elicit birth defects in a a rat study they were feeding rats thirty-five thousand international units of vitamin a and that was the number they had to reach to create the birth defects now how much does a rat weigh yeah Maybe maybe a pound bag, yeah. Like they're not big, so if you go, you know, a dosage per weight <laughs> type type situation, there. That's a lot of vitamin A to elicit birth defects and right. a fat soluble vitamin A form, right? I can't even do the math on what that would have to be for a woman to consume. You couldn't physically at all. You couldn't eat that much. You couldn't physically do that through the diet, and there are no studies linking dietary vitamin A only with birth defects, every one of the studies had a component of synthetic or supplemental vitamin A, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? And it only was this little small window in the first trimester, third trimester. It's all fair game, right? We need that vitamin A component. We need those fat soluble vitamin nutrients. Currently it's estimated 57% of American women don't consume the minimum amount of vitamin A
0: it's quite a bit. So would you say in the third trimester that it would be relatively safe to take a supplement if one wouldn't or couldn't eat liver? I can't say that I would have signed up to eat liver when I was pregnant.
1: And and it's not bad. I mean, I have definitely many, many women who we talk about eating, you know, more vitamin A in the diet Mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. And we have some tricks to get, to get it down without having to sit down to, you know, mm, I love lamb liver and onion. it's delicious, <laughs> right? Because most women aren't gonna do that. Uh, but you can stick it, in, stick it in with things like ground beef. If you're going to do spaghetti, if you're gonna do chili, if you're gonna make hamburgers, you can easily put some liver in there and not know it's there. There's also other foods that are high in vitamin A. Mm-hmm. All of your winter squashes, anything orange, sweet potatoes, butternut squash, those all have keratins in them, and that will get broken down into the active vitamin A form. Now, it's only about 15% conversion rate, but every little bit helps, right? Right. Other things, you have things like pasture-raised eggs, very high in vitamin A. Grass-fed butter, also high in vitamin A. There's a lot of other ways to get it. Liver just happens to be the best. Okay.
0: So a sweet potato with a slab of grass-fed butter every day in your third yeah. trimester.
1: I, a sweet potato. I could be down with my, that. Yeah, that's one of my uh, my pregnancy superfoods.
0: Yes, I love sweet potatoes. Okay, so all will talk about um, functional medicine. You know, what does that mean exactly? And mm-hmm. how is it different or how do we work it together with traditional medicine and yeah. why should we care as providers? <laughs> right.
1: I work hand in hand with a number of physicians, uh, hospital midwives, home birth midwives, the whole gamut of conventional medicine care. And functional medicine differs in the fact that we are not looking for overt disease. We are looking for how the body is functioning, okay? How is the body working? Because you can be working kind of at a subpar level but not have a disease that needs to be medically managed. Our goal is to keep you from needing a medically managed disease by catching the dysfunction soon and using the nutrition that goes into how these processes function to correct the dysfunction where we can, right? So preeclampsia, for example, right? In the midwifery world, in the, in the physician world, there's not much that you can do with preeclampsia until it gets to the point that we just have a baby, right? Or we need that medical intervention. There's not a lot of uh, treatment protocol for that. When we look at functional medicine, again, that differentiation component is figuring out, okay, why do we have preeclampsia? Where's the dysfunction? We look at the function of that placenta, the function of the liver, the function of the kidneys. What's, what's the dysfunction and how do we correct or support and manage that dysfunction? Because definitely with preeclampsia, there's definitely cases where you're not going to reverse anything this is a progressive disease and our job is to manage it as best we can to prevent mom from having eclampsia or hoping, helping her get to term. So baby has the best chance. Right. So we look at primarily, we look at lab work a lot differently than conventional medicine. So like I was saying, like the anemia side, right. We look at it just differently. I love to run metabolic panels in pregnancy. And I know a lot of times, you know, conventional medicine, they don't, they don't really run those very often. Um, I use them preventatively because it gives me a lot of information on how that liver is functioning, how uh, the kidneys are functioning. What is our electrolyte balance? What does our protein zinc aspects look like? And if there's dysfunction happening there and we already see, oh my gosh, like the, you know, ALP is supposed to dang near double throughout pregnancy and it's still at, you know, 50 well that could be a zinc deficiency it could be a protein issue or b6 issue and we look at that function and we start going ooh okay all right that's that's not supposed to be that way that has to come up because that's a sign of maybe the placenta not doing it what it's supposed to do so we just look at it differently with that idea does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's an adjunct to conventional care functional medicine doesn't replace conventional care it helps support the conventional care. Our goal in functional medicine, when we apply it to maternity care, is to create maternal function. We want mom's body to work as best it can, so we can prevent complications as much as possible. Because, mm-hmm. so like you said, a, you can't fix preeclampsia,
0: but can yeah. you prevent it? Yes, yeah. that's a yeah. great explanation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and most of the time, you know, preeclampsia in and of itself is a dysfunction of the placenta primarily. There's other other causes as well but it typically occurs during the first trimester and it typically occurs because of what the embryo brought with it. That's that preconception. And there are studies that show that 50% of preeclampsia cases can be actually be linked to male factor, which is very interesting, right? Where the yes. sperm didn't have enough B vitamins. It didn't have enough zinc. It didn't have enough of something. Mm-hmm. And so as those trophoblast trophoblast cells of the embryo develop into the placenta, they don't develop correctly. Maybe there was a B vitamin issue, so the DNA didn't get stabilized correctly, right? Uh, Could have been magnesium deficiency. We didn't get enough nitric oxide, so the blood vessels didn't dilate the way they're supposed to. They didn't widen, and now they're narrow. A lot of different causes that can happen, but primarily it happens in first trimester. Now, I have definitely seen where people maybe got sick in the second trimester. That placenta continues to grow. It doesn't just grow in the first trimester and then we're done. It grows throughout where they got sick or they got malnourished or something happened and they became very deficient for a few weeks. And then they go in for a growth ultrasound and that placenta didn't grow for those two weeks, right? The baby didn't grow for those two weeks. And now we have set ourselves up for having that placental dysfunction from that point on preventative care you know is is sometimes crisis management like so when things like that pop up going all right this is what we're going to do to support you right now we know you're sick maybe you had for example i had a patient who ended up with a uh, food poisoning situation and was vomiting right you see this i mean say, this would be actually applied similarly to people with hyperemesis people with hyperemesis are more likely to have placental dysfunction because of nutritional deficiency and what we did is basically gave her nutrition IVs, right? Not just saline IVs. Like if you have hyperemesis and you go to the ER, they, they tend to give you just a saline drip. They hydrate you. But that doesn't compensate for the deficiencies that are occurring because you're not eating and you're vomiting everything. And some of those B vitamin deficiencies actually exasperate hyperemesis. Biamine deficiency, B6 deficiency, pantothenic acid, those are all associated with more severe vomiting in the first trimester. And we give a nutrient IV. So it's got the saline, but we have a bunch of B vitamins in there. We've got some zinc, we've got magnesium, we've got nutrition in that. And it makes a significantly bigger difference in prevention of those nutritional deficiencies and thus prevention of the complications that can occur from those nutritional deficiencies.
0: Yeah. I've been known to give a banana bag. Is that the same thing? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 With all the goods. Yeah. And that seems to be mm-hmm. helpful with, um, HG mamas. They're, yeah. so, they're so sick.
1: They are That's so sick. Sad,
0: sad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. Again, I wrote in the book, there's a you know, more and more research coming out on, on HG and some of the ideology behind it. Uh, but it's interesting that there is a correlation, genetic correlation, right? We, we see that familial, yeah. oh, my mom had bad morning sickness. I have it too. Um, all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting that the two genes that they have discovered that are highly associated with hyperemesis are blood sugar regulating genes. Hmm. And so these women tend to have really significant drops in their blood sugar. And that, and I always think it's one of these like horrible designs of biology that when your blood sugar drops, your body wants to vomit mm-hmm. because it seems like it would be the opposite. Yeah. But it's more of like a shock scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so interestingly, it, it becomes like this really fun, difficult game of trying to get keep their blood sugar up. And for some of these women I've had, I had one woman in particular who had severe hyperemesis she was on her fifth pregnancy. She'd always had it with every one of her pregnancies. We literally had her eating Snickers and that wow. kept her from vomiting because it kept her blood sugar up. Right. Right. And it was that's really cool. interesting because it's totally opposite of what you really want to do. Right. You're Like, oh yeah, just eat the Snickers. It's like the commercial. Yes. Um, but in this thing, this single case, that's what kept her from vomiting.
0: Yeah. Well, I had glucose and have some protein a little bit, some
1: peanuts. Right right there's some peanuts and there's some there's some stuff happening there yeah Yeah. it's not just a honey stick um
0: (laughs) hey so it was
1: interesting That was always one of those ones that um and that was before actually yeah before these two uh the studies that i found on on the genetics behind hyperemesis but it was interesting that she was just saying that she had to eat a snickers like go for it Mm -hmm. (laughs) eat eat, eat it have fun
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Okay. So top things that we birth workers and pregnant families need to know about maternal functional medicine when prepping for birth and postpartum.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, so for prepping for birth and postpartum, again, that's like my favorite thing because that prepping for birth is just so dependent on so many things that are happening. uh, That understanding, again, understanding that physiology. And again, with your guys' education, I don't I don't know how deep you guys go into this Uh, and I think everybody's education behind it seems to be a little different so when I talk to like my home birth midwife friends they don't they don't touch on any of this some of my nurse midwife friends definitely have an idea of what's going on here but then it's very interesting to me how some of them don't right Um, but I think going in and understanding all the little maternal physiological changes that go into that progression towards childbirth is very important and knowing when those happen so that you can guide a woman through that last trimester and all these different physical changes correctly, right? Mm -hmm. And and knowing how that will actually impact her ability to labor. Now, also third trimester, like I was saying, the preparing for preparing, Uh, nutritionally, what she's doing in that third trimester is going to set her up for success or failure in that postpartum period as well. Things like magnesium, for example. Uh, magnesium deficiency is uh, very under, under, under Recognized. Yeah. Yeah, under-recognized. under, And if you, know, if you look at the RDA for magnesium in pregnancy, it's actually less than outside of pregnancy, which is the most ridiculous thing ever. Uh, we see that in the third trimester, estrogen levels skyrocket, just like cortisol does. And estrogen upregulates the absorption, utilization, transport, all that of magnesium. We need magnesium to make nitric oxide to dilate the blood vessels. We also need magnesium for oxytocin receptors to work correctly. Oxytocin can't bind to a receptor without magnesium. So when we're looking at nutrition for the preparation and, and the support postpartum, it really is, it's understanding this physiology again and how this nutrition plays in, into these different aspects so that we can support a mom during these phases and prevent the complications again in in that next phase. And sometimes it is, it's it's educating yourself more on these connections than maybe what you were taught. And I think sadly, most of us weren't taught these things, right? And how nutrition plays into this was definitely not taught. We, you know, know things like, oh yes, we get, you know, corticotropin releasing hormone from the placenta and that's going to signal oxytocin production or those sorts of things. But very little is given to the fact that, oh, oxytocin is made from nine amino acids two of those amino acids are essential amino acids, meaning you have to get them in the diet. And so we talk a lot about protein deficiency or eat protein, protein, protein to our pregnant moms, but we don't tell them why because I think some of us don't know why. We just know we need a lot of protein in pregnancy. That's what we were told. You need a lot of leucine and isoleucine to make your oxytocin. If we are protein deficient, we may be oxytocin deficient. And then that goes into the childbirth aspect again. If you can't make enough oxytocin, You could have made all of the receptors in the world, but if your brain can't produce the oxytocin, then you can't have a successful contraction. If you were magnesium deficient, that oxytocin can't bind to the receptor on the uterus to actually facilitate that contraction. If you were manganese deficient, you can't make hyaluronic acid that you need to ripen the cervix correctly. So there's a lot of these nutritional components that go into that whole labor process that we just don't talk about because most of us don't know. We don't know that nutrition affects labor outcomes because there isn't a study out there that says this nutritional deficiency is associated with failure to progress. It's not out there. You have to piece it together and say, okay, we know that hyaluronic acid in particular is essential for that cervix to ripen during childbirth. In fact, there is, oh, I can't even remember what the increase in hyaluronic acid is. There's a ridiculously high increase in hyaluronic acid in maternal bloodstream and it floods the cervix. Hyal- hyaluronic acid is a hydrator. Right? It pulls fluid into the interstitial spaces of the, of the cells. So between the cells. And remember earlier, I said, what does cortisol do? It makes all the collagen fibers get parallel, right? So we have gaps. Prostaglandins give those fibers flexibility. Okay. Hyaluronic acid fills the gaps with fluid so that we ripen and we get soft and squishy. Right? But if we're missing anything there for, for prostaglandins to be made, we need omega-6 fatty acids, linoleic acid specifically. Without that, or if we have too many omega-3 fatty acids, maybe we may not get the prostaglandin production we are supposed to. And it's the prostaglandin production in and of itself that triggers hyaluronic acid production. And hyaluronic acid is made from starches and minerals, magnesium and manganese. And we have to have that to make that hyaluronic acid. There was a study done that compared induction methods a long time ago. And one of the induction methods they used was injections of hyaluronic acid directly into the cervix. That sounds horrible, doesn't
0: it? It does, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. That's <laughs> why it was deemed a non-useful treatment, even though it had significantly better outcomes in vaginal births with zero side effects. But because it was an injection into the cervix, which you had to do every three hours,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was it was deemed unusable because it was not user-friendly. Yeah. But really, what it did more than anything was show us how important this hyaluronic acid development is for the progression of labor. And if we go nutritionally, hyaluronic acid is highly, highly influenced by nutritional components. It's a carbohydrate based molecule. You have to have carbohydrates in order to make that chemical,
0: which is very interesting. So, no keto diets.
1: I am so anti-keto diet and pregnancy.
0: I did see you posted something the other day and it was great. I actually saved it to use for, if anyone asked me about keto, Yeah, what was it? Tell me. Well, just in general, the ketogenic diet is
1: associated with more neurological changes in the fetus, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. in the third trimester. And what happens is there is a metabolic shift that happens in maternal physiology where Lactogens produced by the placenta kind of block some of your body or mom's body's ability to pull insulin and blood sugar into her cells with the idea of raising blood sugar slightly and giving blood sugar to baby so that baby can put on fat right? We need to give a chubby baby before they're born. We need, we need some body weight. But what happens is that now the body mom's body starts to break down the fat that she actually stored in the first trimester. It is completely normal for a woman to gain a little bit of body fat in the first trimester. It's that preparing for preparing where now her body is going to break down that body fat. And what happens is there's two things that can cross the placenta during this time frame, insulin bound sugar, right? The sugar going to the baby and ketones. Okay, we do need some element of ketones, right? And those ketones come from mom's metabolism of, of fats. But when you go on a keto diet, what happens is the placenta doesn't limit how many ketones can get through the system. It's got like an open floodgate. Yeah, bring on the ketones, like the more the merrier. But that's not the case. And what we'll see is that the higher the ketone levels get, the higher the level of ketones get in the baby's brain. And then we start to see neurological effects in babies. So more ketones, not, not the best. And so that's why we're kind of anti the ketogenic diet. We Do you need know what the
0: neurologic changes lead to? Like, are we talking about learning disabilities or is it just changes that they've seen on imaging?
1: Changes that they see on imaging in animal studies, it mm. was like brain retardation,
0: mm. like severe neurological oh, okay. changes.
1: Yeah. So we are opposed to ketogenic diet in pregnancy as much as possible, just simply because of that basically placental floodgate that happens
0: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that sounds not good so just from I guess a a, like what do I do now as a practitioner so like prenatals I know that you can't just talk about every prenatal on every shelf everywhere right but if someone was taking a run-of-the-mill prenatal what may they need to supplement with in addition like I know magnesium I tell yeah I Pregnant families all the time, add magnesium and add vitamin D. Those are the Mm -hmm. two I'll say. And choline. Those are the top three that I say to add. So what would you say to add? to I would say
1: you're you're pretty spot on with those three. And it depends on the prenatal. There are some pretty crappy prenatals out there. Yeah. That literally, I mean, and and what is the prenatal? It's designed to grow a baby. That's -hmm. the idea between the prenatals is to give you the nutrients you need to grow a baby not really to support the mom. Mm -hmm. So when we look at vitamin D, for example, I only know of maybe two or three prenatals that actually provide the new recommendations for vitamin D in pregnancy, which is 4,000 international units.
0: Mm -hmm. It's
1: a lot of vitamin D. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on where you live. So where I am here in Colorado, vitamin D deficiency is significantly more common than say my patients who live in Florida. And it has to do with latitude and elevation more than anything, right? We get a lot of sunshine here in Colorado, but the UV rays that we get are not adequate. And we'll see that in studies. People who live above the 37th parallel and people who live at altitude have a harder time getting vitamin D from the sun. So dietary vitamin D or supplemental vitamin D becomes really important. We also see newer studies that shown it was a 2019 study And we're just now starting to, of course, you know, studies happen and it takes years for us to start implementing the, the study information. But what they found was in order to minimize complications in pregnancy, vitamin D is associated with a number of complications in pregnancy and childbirth. Mom's blood levels of vitamin D needed to be 40 in GDL. Okay. Their study was based on what was the minimum needed to keep it at 32, And what they found was it was a minimum, basically, of 4,000 international units to maintain these levels throughout pregnancy. That's a lot more than the 600 RDA. Significantly more, right? And then that jumps up in postpartum. Postpartum, if you're breastfeeding, you need 6,000 international Mm -hmm. units of vitamin D for your baby to get 400 international units through the breast milk. So we've really under underrated and underutilized these vitamins a lot, oftentimes in prenatals, most prenatals I see have about a thousand international units of vitamin D. Um, you get a prescription one. The worst prenatal I've ever seen was one that's prescribed from one of our local OB offices. And I always forget the name of it, but it's, uh, it's like a, you know, a pharmaceutical, one of their medication-based prenatals, and it has some B vitamins in it. It has a ton of folic acid in it, and it has 400 international units of vitamin D. mm mm-hmm. But prenatals wise, I, you know, I also say that there isn't a prenatal that helps support mom's nutritional needs throughout all of pregnancy because her metabolism is shifting her nutritional, her personal nutritional needs are shifting, right? We definitely need, as we just said, significantly more vitamin A in the third trimester, six fold increase in those receptors. We need a large amount of vitamin A and specifically the retinoid forms, not beta carotene. So when we're looking at prenatals, again, kind of understanding all these different things. Yes, oftentimes we are also adding in additional things to those prenatals. I'm a big fan of food. I personally love to eat food and all foods. <laughs> um, so I'm always trying to help my patients in particular incorporate these different things into their diet, whether it's things like I want you to have, you know, literally a cup of nuts and seeds every day. Right? I want you to work on that. I want you to have you know, three ounces of liver throughout the course of the week. I want you to have three eggs a day, whatever it is that I can help them incorporate. That's going to help them not have to take as many pills because pills suck, especially when you're maybe have, you know, nausea or anything on those lines. Um, but there are, it's, it's hard to navigate the prenatals. I Mm -hmm. have, I wrote an article. There's an article up on uh, both of my websites that goes over what to look for in prenatal vitamins.
0: Okay. Nice.
1: What I'm aiming for, like in my, ranges. Right. And I also talk a little bit about, you know, how that slightly
0: changes through, through gestation. Where would we find that? Cause that would be very helpful.
1: Yep. So either of my websites, <laughs> so the, the book website is functionalmaternity.com. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, a bunch of informational articles on there as well. Um, and then my clinic website is sacred vessel com. Okay. So either oh. one of those websites, actually, you can find that
0: specific article. I would love to see you like make a course. Do you already have one? If you don't, you should make one. It's in the works. Okay. Because I thought, you know, I've read Lily Nichols, which I'm sure you have too. She's fantastic. And I've taken a couple of her courses, but I feel like um, it's not even a competition between her book and yours because yours is so different, even mm -hmm. though. The information is nutrition blah, blah, blah. Um, right. there's so much science behind it and the endocrinology behind it so I really think like if you could pick two nutrition books <laughs> it would be these two they're so great Thank do you, you think that yeah, do you feel like, like you took a little different path than she did I did yeah and I and I kind of
1: I did it for a number of reasons, right? Obviously her book is fantastic. Mm-hmm. She she wrote the cover review for my book. Oh yeah, I saw that. She, yeah, she's fantastic. And I respect her a lot and what she's doing mm-hmm. and the information she's putting out. And I didn't want to overlap or step on her toes in any way, shape or form. And so, in fact, it's the entire reason I didn't do a chapter on gestational diabetes mm-hmm. is because she her whole book on gestational di- diabetes is phenomenal. Right. And it's the resource that I actually pass out to my patients with gestational diabetes. My goal was to actually focus primarily on the information that practitioners need in order to treat their patients more successfully. I want every midwife, I want every OBGYN, I want anybody working with pregnant women to understand this physiology deeper to understand how the nutrition plays into the effects and how this physiology works, because that's how we make changes in maternal statistics is by getting the information out there to the people who can treat the people who can manage and and the people who are in the prime position to spread this information and use this information correctly because yes. it is, it's, you know, I, it's powerful. It's, it's stuff that we should have all been taught with anybody who works in, in maternity care and we weren't and we should have been. And so the idea again is to, was to design a book that a mother could pick up and get information from, but was going to advance the education and the knowledge for the people in the prime position to make change.
0: Exactly. I can definitely see that happening even my gears are going like okay what could I implement that could do you know change these little key points like should I draw labs at this point or blah 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 Mm -hmm. so one of the
1: courses that I'm working on putting together that I should have up and running this summer is is reading lab work differently Mm. So looking at the lab work from that functional perspective, but more importantly, a maternity functional perspective, because it changes drastically throughout pregnancy, right? And I've had functional pet medicine practitioners who were trained in looking for those different functional and nutritional components in lab work, look at pregnancy labs and think there's something wrong when there isn't something wrong, because there are certain things that are 100% normal in pregnancy. For example, I had a practitioner call me and he was panicked because one of his patients had elevated copper levels in the third trimester. And I looked at the labs and kind of you know, was like, oh my gosh, stop what you're doing um, because they were hundred percent normal. There is a normal increase in copper levels in the third trimester. And it has to happen to facilitate these natural physiological changes in mom's body. And he was trying to figure out how to chelate it and how to get it to come down. And that right there is kind of one of those things that, too, even if you go study functional medicine, there is a lack of understanding and a lack of education in the uniqueness of pregnancy. Right. And so, you know, midwives are are perfect (laughs) because you're you're, the, the wonderful little combination of the conventional with a love of the natural and understanding this at a deeper level. And being able to incorporate these nutritional components into what you already know and maybe taking it the next step so that we are all on the same page and, and can really help these mothers have the best pregnancy experience, childbirth experience, and postpartum and future life experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many conditions that become lifelong chronic illnesses are triggered by pregnancy and are triggered by pregnancy because mom's body wasn't supported during that process. Mm-hmm.
0: So I do have, I know we're almost done, but I do have kind of a heavy question for people that live in, let's say food deserts or socioeconomic yeah. status is, is poor or they're on WIC or mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, we often see more maternal mortality higher in those absolutely things like that. So what do you do? Like you can't, it's hard to say, well, you got to eat this, this, and this, you got to change this and this, When they literally like either don't have access to it or can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. And that becomes interesting. And so I
1: definitely work, I've worked with many patients who are in those situations. Um, I've done some donation treatments for a number of people who can't afford, can't afford our services. And so we do them out of the need. Right. Um, And it's trying to make the best of what they can get. So things like peanut butter, right? Mm-hmm. Peanut butter is something that's on WIC. It's, it's something that's very actually surprisingly nutritionally dense and great for preparing for childbirth, a lot of linoleic acid, a lot of zinc, a lot of those sorts of things. So it's working with what we have, right? I work with patients literally all over the world and their food, with what, what, what they have available differs drastically. And so... I look at these like food desert areas, these socioeconomic interurban areas as being similar to my patients who live in India. Mm -hmm. It's like a different culture. It's a different cultural food. It's a different aspect there. They're what they have available is very different. And so part of functional medicine, and I've definitely had arguments with other functional medicine practitioners about this is being able to help somebody make what they're already doing better without changing their culture, without changing their whole world or putting them on a plan that is completely unrealistic to where they live and what they have available. And it requires educating yourself more about what's available, asking them questions about what do you have near you, right? Even in urban areas or food deserts, canned food is available, right? Canned vegetables, are are just as good as fresh vegetables in those situations, right? We're not always trying to put somebody on, you know, oh, you have to go to the farmer's market and get all organic and grass-fed beef and all that stuff because that is 100% unrealistic for a large portion of society Mm -hmm. here in the States. You know, some of the areas I grew up, you're not gonna get (laughs) a lot of fresh veggies. Mm -hmm. Um, My grandparents, my dad grew up in a town called Hartzarn, Oklahoma. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with hearts aren yet. Mm-mm. It's down. It's like due south of you, <laughs> like way south towards Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas border down there. And that town was very much, you know, isolated as far as what you were, what you could get. It's a very, very small town. And it's understanding that aspect. And sometimes it is, it's, it's, having people do a lot of canned foods because that's what they have access to. Um, Get some canned spinach and add it to this or whatever we can do to make what they're doing better. Does it make sense?
0: Yeah. And I really liked that and respected that. You talked about that in your book about appreciating people's culture and not saying we have to do this, 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 and change all this, but instead, how do you eat? Whether that is, I think you said you had come from... Korean. Korean, okay. Korean culture (laughs) or whatever, Chinese, Hispanic, and saying, this is how you eat. How can we support that? And you're right. Exactly. Like you said, living, having to utilize WIC or whatever, that's your culture. And so how do you make the best of that? So that is extremely helpful advice. Um, I guess I would love to see like adding another project, right. Would be like nutrition plans for like maybe WIC for WIC participants. Like how can they say, here's to eat well using WIC benefits, you know? And I will say Lily Nichols did a really
1: good job of doing just that. Okay, okay, I'll have to go she, back to it. Yeah, so she, she used to work for, I don't know, I, I don't want to overstep because I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. But she was a nutritionist for one of the systems and she has a bunch of articles. I think she even talks about it in her real food for pregnancy book uh, of foods that do fall into the WIC categories and also are nutritionally dense for pregnancy. Okay. It's been a couple of years since I've read, but I'm going to go back and. Yeah. And I know she's done uh, lectures, lectures on it for sure. Hmm. But she she has developed some plans associated with that. Mm -hmm.
0: Good. Thank you. Yeah. I love that you go uh, that y'all can just be so supportive and of each other. Like it's like my acupuncture pregnancy. Yeah, there's there's
1: I can't do everything. (laughs) She can't do everything. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, the physicians
1: can't do everything. Mm -hmm. It's about collaboration. It's about coming together and supporting the women even if that means i have to refer them to somebody else right mm-hmm. the idea is to support the mother as much as possible and if somebody else has a better protocol somebody else has something better than me i'm absolutely mm-hmm. going to send send them over there i, I do it all, all the time here in practice too there's definitely times i'm like mm, yeah that's not really a condition i'm good at um, mm-hmm. my practice we we do We do a number of things, not just pregnancy related, but we do a lot of hormone work, thyroid work and uh, being an acupuncturist. We get calls for all sorts of things from pain management. You know, there's other practitioners around me that are better at other things. And I am absolutely going to refer a patient to somebody else if that's a better fit. Mm
0: -hmm. And you said you uh, see clients all over the world. So you offer virtual services. We do. Yeah, we have virtual virtual functional
1: medicine appointments. Obviously you can't do acupuncture virtually. We haven't figured that one out yet, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but we do functional medicine. I have patients um, literally, like I said, all over the world,
0: Thailand, Australia, Canada, um, India. So they could come to you and say, Hey, this is my lab work. Mm -hmm. We help. Yeah. That's nice. And they can access that through your website. They can. Yep. So
1: either of those two websites, we mentioned the sacred vessel acupuncture.com or functional maternity.com. They can access the clinic that way. We always do free 15 minute phone consultations that people can call and just talk to us. And we'll just be, I'm, I'm honest. I try to say, yes, I can help you. Or no, I think you've really got to go this route.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, do you have anything else to add? Anything we didn't cover? No, I don't think so. That was okay. fun. That was. <laughs> Thank you. I, this, this is so great and so valuable. And like I said, this, your book is like hundred percent. If you're going to be a provider of any fashion, even doulas really, because yes. you're still going to educate, you should read this book.
1: Yeah, I agree. If you're working with, with any healthcare form, but specifically pregnancy, you really have to know the nutritional piece. Mm-hmm. Because like I said before, you're not just treating the person in the room, you're treating the next generation and possibly the next generation in yeah. that one room and so what we do today affects years after years after years and the health of these women and it's that piece that really really is something we can change not only maternal outcomes over the course of the next generation but maybe bring down our our negative health statistics right? Let's bring down the rate of heart disease and gestational diabetes and diabetes in general by, by working on the mom in the room and helping that baby and that mom become the healthiest
0: they can be at that, that time. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: That's very heavy and true. That's and true. It's heavy because it's true. And we need to fix this at the root of the problem and not right. on the other. Yeah. 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 So prevention thanks, is Sarah.
1: easier than treatment. Yeah. Thank uh, you for having me.
0: It's been fun. And that's it for another episode. Be sure to check out Sarah's website if you want more information, and as I said, I definitely think her book is a must-read, so I hope you'll check that out too. I love the emails that I receive from you all, so if you want to email me at journey to midwifery podcast at gmail.com. I'm always reading them. And then remember, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Journey to Midwifery Podcast. Until next time.